Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Peter the Chief Graham, welcome to The Stick Up. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, Mate, excited to be here. I, was in, I remember this phenomenon, there was this, this golden era of kickboxing in Australia, Terence Solak was promoting fights. Then Australia got drew attention to K1, you know, and then it become this big phenomenal. And here's Peter, Peter the Chief Graham, this fucking giant of a fucking man. I just, I, I, I'm so intrigued, and we had a good chat on Sunday a bit about your story, and, and there's a lot of your story I didn't know, and, I, and it just made it so more intriguing. I kept on telling my PA, this guy's got one of the most amazing stories of adversity, of overcoming adversity to achieve what he's got. Mate, Let's let's just start off. Where, where, what was your upbringing like? You know, unlike a lot of other people, most people, everyone's heard the rags to riches story. I actually started off all right. I was uh, born in North Sydney, and then when I was a little kid, I grew up in Fairlight, which is a suburb yeah, behind a bit, An affluent area, yeah. Yeah, affluent area. We're doing all right. And then, you know, make a, a, a very long, unusual story short, shit went bad really fast. Mm. And then we moved to the inner west. Inner west, obviously, back then, it wasn't like it was now. It wasn't, you know, uh, you know now, you know, what are you paying millions of dollars for a mm. house? Then it was really working class. And But, you know, we moved on top of, basically on top of a petrol station, a shop front terrace, but we had to go through the petrol station to go upstairs in uh, Helston Park. And I was like, what the hell is happening? I was a real fish out of water, you know. I found out really fast, you know, don't tell anyone from the northern beaches it, because I just... You know, people were a lot tougher. You know, the Northern Beaches was really an easy place to grow up when you were a little kid. Yeah. But then things got bad pretty quickly. My older brother was in and out of boys' homes already. He was just off. I didn't really know where he was. And, you know, it was just my mum uh, and the kids. And then, you know, it was all right for a while. And then my mum dropped us off at child services for a while saying, oh, I need a break. And and then I remember they came and they picked up my little sister and they said, oh, you got to stay. She doesn't want you back. She just wants her. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, the people were nice enough to me though. I'm like, then I went back and then back and forward until I was about 12 and a half or 13. Then I was just in, in refuges and running around the streets and just being a, a general wombat. Mate, and things could have went really south. When I say that, like... You would have seen in that street life that you would have seen, you would have seen a lot of kids going in and out of boys' homes and girls' homes. You would have seen a, the start of drug use or any on that sort of thing. Did any of that sort of stuff appeal to you? You know what? Everyone, want, everyone was doing something. Yeah. I, I, I think at the time it was really bad, but also looking back now, it was actually, I guess, a blessing, a real blessing in disguise is I just wanted to be accepted by whatever group I could be with. But because I moved so much, I was never allowed to stay in one place. I never even got locked up. 
So I wasn't even in a, you know, in a boys' home for six months or a year or anything like that. I basically moved from refuge to refuge to refuge. That I wouldn't. My mum had to sign some paperwork or something to say that I could become a state ward or looked after by the government. And she wouldn't do it. Which just men said I'd only ever go to like a medium-term refuge at the longest. So before, you know, you kind of had to get in with a crew before they'd let you do what they were doing. Yeah. And, you know. People... And, and you had to prove yourself a little bit too. You got to, had to prove your willingness. Exactly. Yeah. I, I wasn't anywhere long enough really for people to say, oh, here, you can hang with us now. Yeah. I mean, three months was the longest, but, but sometimes I just move every couple of weeks. Were you, were you a kid that was athletically gifted? Because you later went on to be like in a supreme athlete. Were you athlete, athletically gifted? You know what? I, I never really did anything in high school at all. You know, yeah. I smoked cigarettes and got drunk, and I, I, I was never like I said. You know, every now and then, you know, that we'd have a, you know, a, I always wanted to go on a running carnival or a swimming mm. carnival. I could swim pretty good, mm. but I never went more than you know, just you know, the the next kind of level above. You know, you win the one at school, and then you go to the next one. Yeah, state, regional. No, all of those yeah, yeah, of... just regional was the best. You know, yeah. because even if I did well at regionals, I go to a new school. Yeah, and, and they'd forgotten about And they'd forgotten about it. So I never got good at anything. Like yeah. Sometimes, you know, there's the, the Ginger Megs model, you know, maybe think, oh, he's not real good at math and, you know, reading and writing and stuff like that, but he's really good with kids, he's got lots of friends, or he's crafty. It wasn't that either. Yeah. You know, and a story I tell people, when I was about 14, I was living at Eastwood in a big stormwater drain just near the, near the train station. And the reason I was there is because I was too scared to go and live with all the street kids in the city. My older brother, I used to hang around with them and I wanted to go see him, but I was like, look, I wasn't street savvy. I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't good at making friends. Basically because I was never anywhere long enough and my mum just had no friends at all. So I was a bit awkward. So I used to live in this stormwater drain. I just jump over the fence and I could stuff myself, you know, like the little pipes that go into one. I'd stuff my stuff there so no one would find it. Because, you know, most of the time they've just got a little trickle of water. Yeah. And then I just kind of sleep out of the bushes under there. And I remember one night I said to myself, I said, man, fuck you, you're not good at anything. What does everyone say to you? If you keep going like that, you're going to end up a criminal. Yeah. So I thought, oh, fine, I'll become a crim. But if I can't join a gang, I'll, I'll just be me. So there was a sports store just up, up the road a little bit near uh, Eastwood train station. And there were some big uh, clay pots with like little trees and shrubs and I knew mm. one of them was kind of empty so I thought what I'll do is I'll go up I'll wait till it's about 2 o'clock in the morning I'll pick it up I'll throw it through the big plate glass window and I'll run in and I'll go get some cool sneakers and some clothes and stuff like that and at least I'll look good yeah that's that whole thing that old image thing that kids go through at that age 12, 14 years old image is really important yeah you, you, know, want, to, you want to fit in with yeah. who you are so uh, and that was me except I, I kind of knew what I wanted to fit in with, but it was just me. I was just hanging out by myself. I didn't go to school. I didn't do anything. So I, I picked it up. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, no one around, middle of the week, and it bounced off the big, <laughs> <laughs> bounced off the wick because it's made out of clay. Yeah. And, and I didn't know that. And yeah. it smashed into little pieces. Of course, all the alarms and bells yeah. started going off. And I'm like, shit. And oh, I legged it out of there. I ran all the way back, jumped over the fence, jumped into the stormwater drain. I'm sitting there. I'm re- <sighs> you know, I'm like, oh. And then I thought to myself, well, you're a fucking loser. Mm. Mate, you can't even be a crimp. You can't even smash a bloody window. Mm. And I remember I, I was, mate, I was down. I remember saying to myself, I said, look, if there's a God, 
give me a sign. I'll take anything. And as much as I'd like to say God came down and I saw a sign <laughs> and everything worked out well and I realised what I was... Nothing happened. Yeah. And nothing happened for... But I kept looking. I think that's the thing. I was kept... I went... I always kind of had a thought in my mind. Everyone's got to be good at something. Yeah. Maybe I'm not good at those things, but I've got to have something. I don't know what it is. I said, I'll just keep on trying. Do you reckon that's when the, the fighting spirit really ignited in you? I never thought of that. It, you know what? That's really profound. It probably was. Like you had to learn to fight. You had to learn how to hustle from there on in because it's a profound moment. I'm not really good at anything, but I've got to find something that I am. Yeah, you're right. I never thought of it like that. Yeah, but I think you're correct. You know, but also I had that desire. I wanted to be better. Yeah. It's either fuck it, I'm not going to do anything, or fuck it, I'm just going to keep going. So I was just like, I, I, I was desperate. Yeah. I remember kids used to, you know, tease and say, oh, you're desperate. And I go, yeah, I am. Yeah. They go, you're a tryhard. Yeah, I am. Like in my head, I'm like, yeah, that's me. I'm going to try hard <laughs> yeah. and I'm desperate. The gift of desperation, they call it. Yeah, it's a good, it's a, you either use it to flame destroying your life and burning it to ashes. Yeah. Or flame a fire of success. And that's what I did. I kept looking and nothing happened until I was 18. Tell me this. What I just want to backtrack just one little bit because me and you have talked off, off air and we talked about school. How were you treated at school because you were on the move? Like the teachers were sort of a bit dismissive of you. When there's a room full of kids and you're the new kid, you know, they'd find out pretty quickly I lived in a refuge and they'd go, oh, you're that kid. And you get treated a certain way. And because I was moving so much, sometimes the youth workers say, look, he's only going to be here for a while. I just pop him at the back of the class. And so basically I was ignored. They weren't really concerned with me doing well. They're just like, you know, you know, shut up and sit at the back of the class. Mm. Or, yeah, how you can just like do As your... a kid, how did that make you feel? It made me feel irrelevant. I was like, you're just not important. Yeah. And that's just invisible. Because I just turned up to a new school and I got good at seeing what everyone else was doing. Oh, what's everyone else? I'll try to fit in with these guys. And you kind of lose your sense of self. You're like, oh, I'll just... Because human beings naturally live in groups of people, you know, family groups or, yeah. you know, uh, religious groups or footy mm -hmm. fans or whatever. So, you know, I was always looking for that. I was always by myself. I was always like, I was always the new kid, always the kid that no one knew anything about. And, yeah, so I just got used to just being irrelevant to everyone. And I just, and I guess that really polarised what I, I, I wanted to be something. When you, <clears throat> tell, let's talk about when you first started to gauge in combat sports, in martial arts, what, how did that all, all, all come about? Because this is life-changing, game-changing for you. The moment you've walked in that gym, it's game-changing. Would it be a fair assumption? Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that moment. So the reason – I mean, a few things happened that led me to a, to a dojo. It was mm -hmm. a big house kind of look. You know, mm -hmm. it was like you're trying yeah. to put yourself uh, – you know, make yourself look better. Anyway, so I had a fight with this guy there, and they said, you got to go. I said, oh, I don't want to go. They said, you can go here or you can go there, but you can't stay here anymore. And it was a place in Dremoyne. It was called Dremoyne Lodge. And it was like outside of the city. Like I was in North Sydney, mm. so I thought it was a bit mad. Mm. And I'm like, I don't know, Dremoyne. It's like, you know, kind of middle class, you know, wealthier people. So mm. I don't fit in with them. I don't know them. Anyway, 
they said, one of the guys said, look, that's a better place. You should probably try to get in that. So I went there. But every day I used to walk past his bottle. I'd walk past his karate dojo because I was going to a bottle. Mm. You know, buy cigarettes or get drunk or whatever. And it just, every time, like literally, you know. They're He's calling there. you. It, it, you know, that's a good way to say it. We really was. They were all in there going, ah, ah, and I thought, oh, that's awesome, you know. And then one day I said, oh, i got to do something. I was like, just before I turned 18, I, go, I remember having that moment of personal clarity going, Pete, you're nothing. you got nothing. No one knows who you are. You've done nothing. You've you, you got to do something now. At that time, I wasn't confident at all with being academic. I don't know why I thought I could be a good fighter. It wasn't like I was a good street fighter. It wasn't like I was tough. Mm. It wasn't like anything like that I've ever, you know, there wasn't any information that said, oh, you're going to be a good fighter. But you're right. There was something calling to it. I just thought with effort, I could, I reckon I could do that. And I walked in <laughs> and mm. the guy behind the counter, his name was Johnny. I walked in and you can imagine I had a singlet on, mm. you know, probably smelling of cigarettes. And I went, oh, what, what do I need to do to become a karate champ? Because in my mind, I thought, if I become a karate champ, I'm thinking karate kid, I go to the Olympics. I know there wasn't the Olympics in the karate kid, but you know, it was the All-Valley Championships. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought, I can do that. I'll become famous, and then I'll become rich, and I'll live happily ever after. At that time, there wasn't any karate in the Olympics, but fuck, I didn't know. Mm. Didn't it know. sounded good. Yeah, it sounded good. In my head, it was yeah. better than what I was currently doing. Mm. And Johnny said to me years later, he goes, Pete, when you walked in, after you walked out, because he said to me, he said, okay, well, turn up at six o'clock, it's 50 bucks a month, and for the first one's free. Mm. I said, oh, sweet, thanks, man. Mm-hmm. And he said he went back into the office, he goes, man, this crazy kid just walked in. <laughs> he said, they're all laughing. Mm. He goes, I want to be there, courage. And he goes, man, you made me eat my words. Mm. So that night I came down, and I had a pair of demo basketball shorts on. I thought I was a bit mad. Mm. I had a singlet on. I remember going through the basic punches, and I was really trying hard. I was like, ah, oh, fuck. And the, and the sensei said, stop. He goes, what did he say? I said, oh, sorry, mate. He goes, no, you say, horse. I said, yeah, no worries. He goes, not, yeah, no worries. Horse. I'm like, who's this guy? He thinks he's a bit mad. I was like, I was like, oh, I was like, oh. And I was like mate, I'm going to show all these, you know, soft cunts. Okay. And just something clicked in me. I went, this is it. This is what you're going to do. And my sensei was the guy, his name, was Graham, his name is Graham Porter. He was what I wanted to be. I looked at him, he goes, he's tough. He's got an awesome family, got an awesome wife. He had a successful, he has a successful business. He owns a company called Australian Therapeutic Supplies. Mm. Now it's massive. Mm. Uh, Would it be fair to say he was your first male role model? Yeah. Yeah. Like you're always looking for that. Yeah. My bigger brother, I really liked him. He was only, you know, a year older than me, but he was always in boys' homes and then in jail and stuff like that. So they never put us together for some reason. Mm. I think maybe they thought that he was going to influence me to be like him. Mm. He had a huge impact on the way that I modelled myself. I thought that's, that's what you want to do. Mm. I want to be rich, I want to have a family, and I want to kick the shit out of people. And then that was it. That was just like, okay, I need a job because I've got to be able to pay for it. And then a few months later, he gave me a he gave me a job. So I started working in his storeroom, packing boxes and stuff. And that was it. It was just like every day. I think for maybe the first ten years, I never missed a training session. I just I, I, I was desperate. I'm like, okay, you've started late. I always thought everyone who's going to become a career. How old were you at this stage? I just turned 18. Yeah. Never done anything before. I, I literally gave up smoking, like a week before, because I thought that's no good. Stop drinking. 
I never, like I said before, I wasn't a drug guy. Mm. I'm really happy that never happened because yeah. there was so much heroin around. Everyone was dropping like flies. Mm. I just said, this is it. This is all I'm going to focus on. And I thought even my own lack of self-confidence worked for me because I thought, Pete, you're not going to be good at anything. Pick one thing. You, you, you have, if you're going to have a chance of doing anything at all, just pick one thing. I used to say, all oh, these guys are good at this and good at that. Oh, that. I said, no, that's not you. You're not that talented. You're not that good. I used to smoke cigarettes. You never won anything before. If you've got any chance, just do one thing and put 100% mm. in it. And of course, we know now that's a really good idea. You always, by the sound of you, you were a pretty introspective kid. You had a really good internal dialogue. You are always talking to yourself. In, in ter- and I think what I've just gathered so far, that you're always up for the challenge. You're always pushing along, wanting to be better. You wanted to be something and something more. And I think that's what led, what, this is what, I, what I'm hearing, you know what I mean? I think one of your greatest assets is your internal dialogue from a young age. Yeah, I, I remember when I was a little kid, I went in to a St. Vinnie's and I had a whole 20 cents to spend or something. And me trying to get the most bang for my buck, mm. still like that. Yeah. <laughs> I found a, a mug. It was a, like a big mug and there was three beans on it. It was a bean with a face and then a bean with a face and legs and a bean with a face and arms and legs. I said, who am I? Mm. And I must have been five years old or six years old. I went, oh. And I, I really, I, that was probably the first time I ever thought about you. that. You know, who am I? That's who? a good question to ask a five-year-old. Yeah, well, it's a good question for a five-year-old to ask himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I had that cup for ages because mm. it was bigger, and I thought if I got a bigger cup, I'll be able to get more of whatever I'm trying mm. to get. And that's kind of the way, I guess that's a great analogy for who I am. Some people, they take the glass and they go, is it half full or half empty? Yeah. I was just happy I had a glass because <laughs> I figured if I had a glass, I could put something in it. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's how I was. And then going back to where we were before, that's how I looked at it. I thought, uh, and I always saw the good in people. Yeah. Like I always thought, even though I try not to think about how I personally felt about myself because I wasn't a big fan of myself, but I looked at other people. I thought, oh, if you can read, oh, you'll become a barrister. Mm. If you can draw cartoons, oh, you're going to have your own cartoon one day. Or, yeah. you know, if you're good at math, you, you're going to end up working for, for, for NASA or something. Mm. You know, I always thought, Whatever it is, people, why wouldn't you want to go to the nth degree? Why wouldn't you want to become a superstar? Now I realize not everyone's like that. But no. it's that, that need or want to be part of something. I wanted to be, I want people to know who I am. Because I'm so sick of being invisible. Okay, so let's talk about when you started winning fights. How did that feel? What was the first fight you jumped in the ring and how did that make you feel? So when I started fighting, my very first fight, I got my ass kicked. So I was doing full contact bare knuckle karate. This is what they call full contact karate mm. uh, and the, like I said the first one I jumped out I thought it was like a street fight so I jumped mm. out and, <laughs> <laughs> okay. and then I got two and a half minutes to go and he just continued to beat the shit out of me but mm. I stood there and took it yeah. and but you, okay. you, you took a pretty good beating already up and up until that stage of your life so that beating wasn't too foreign to you you know what I mean you sustained a pretty good beating from a young age. It's a good way to look at it. I was, uh, I guess, a me- now you think about a mental beating's far worse than a physical one. Mm. But I just thought, okay, well, he smashed me with low kicks. I remember going back to my my, my dojo and I said to my sensei, I said, "Can you teach me how to do a low kick?" He goes, "Yep." See that bag? He showed me how to kick. He goes, "Kick it a hundred times every day. Kick it a hundred on the right, hundred." So I did that. And the next time I came back, next one. I went, 
start smashing people's legs. I went, and I remember I came second out at St Mary's Band Club. Know it well, my local, growing yeah. up in Mount Droit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they used to have heaps of, you know, well, they still do have boxing and kickboxing. Mm. And I don't know if they have many full contact martial arts tournaments today, but I remember that feeling of people going, hey, Pete, good fight. And I was like, this is awesome. It was it really... You're getting recognised, yeah. It was like, and recognised for my hard work. Mm. And I, I just, it was like, a, I said, that's it, I need to do more. But when I really started to go on my own, so what happened, there's a program called the Uchideshi program, which basically translates to the special program. It's a, a like a live-in karate program in Japan that you have to apply for. And you don't apply as a black belt, you apply as someone who's quite low, even a white belt. Mm. And you basically move in, it's like an apprentice. So all these people apply, thousands and thousands of people, and all those people, my, I said, my sensei said, do you want to try? I said, oh yeah, for sure, I'll do it, mm. whatever. And I hadn't been training for two years, and he said, Pete, have you got any money? And me being the tight ass I was, I had. I was saving up to buy a car. And he goes, I said, yeah. He goes, look, if you chuck in half the money, the dojo and me will chuck in the other half, you've been accepted into this Uchideshi program. I said, no way. Out of the thousands of people, they take about seven people. So it's wow. epically hard as mm. well. So I go to Hawaii. I train with a grandmaster there, a guy called Bobby Lowe. He's a, in a, ninth, a ninth dan in Kilkashin and an eighth dan in Kempo Karate. Uh, then I go to the North American Championships. I think I placed about fourth. I went to Japan and ended this program. And it was like, this is, I thought, this is it. I'm living the karate dream. Mm. I'm, this is only two years of training and I'm already there. And they're just giving me a hiding every day. Um, and were they people from all around the world or just Japanese? Uh, mostly Japanese. There yeah. was another guy there from Kuwasawa, yeah. which is in the Caribbean. Mm. And then there, there was actually a guy called Nicholas Pedos. He's, he's from Denmark. Uh, and they call him the blue-eyed samurai. Mm. He's, he's, he is the real karate king. Mm. It's an amazing story. I uh, should look this guy up. Anyone mm. who's listening, look Nicholas Pettis. Mm. He still lives there. Mm. And he was actually the he was the last the last student, so to speak, of Masayama, the guy who started Kyokushin. Fascinating story. Mm. Fascinating guy. This is a long history of it, isn't it? It's what is the history of that? Like, how old is karate in Japan? It's a funny story, and it's a long story. Yeah. Uh, basically, karate started with they in down in Okinawa. They were doing Chinese kung fu kind of that. But mm. then when the head of judo went down, so we're going to go and have a look at what these guys down here are doing. They said we can't call it that. Let's call it something else because they had a kind of a Chinese name, so they called it karate. It means mm. open hand. It doesn't mean open hand. It means without holding a weapon. Mm. And then they basically named the style after themselves. And then later on. You'd learn it and then, you know, you'd add or subtract what you liked about it. And that's how most karate's. And then there's Okinawan karate, which is normally taught in very small classes, almost one-on-one sometimes, like Mr. Miyagi mm. taught Danielson. <laughs> and then there's mainland Japanese karate, which is taught in rows and rows of people mm. like we've seen in blood sport and stuff yeah. like that. So I get in this program. I'm stoked. I'm like, man, finally... Coincidentally, my brother moved into that refuge I was talking about before. I was sort of like, man, this is awesome. I started to have some contact with my dad. He was still crazy, but I thought, oh, finally I got some family. I felt good. Mm. And I got into this program. I was saving some money. So I'm there for a couple of months. I'm doing this program. I'm starting to get my feel. I'm not getting my ass kicked every day. And then the, this all leads back 
to when I started to do well. I get a call from the office, say, hey, your mum's on on, trying to call you on the phone. I said, my mum? I haven't spoken to my mum in years. And I was only 20 years old. And I said, oh, Jimmy, my girlfriend. And he goes, no, it's your mum. I said, hey, I thought this, this is wrong. She said, I went into the office and they said, oh, Pete, we got a phone call for you. They, they dialed a number, gave me the phone. I'm listening, ringing out. And it was my karate instructor, Graham Porter. I said, hey, hey, Graham, how you going? He goes, oh, good. He goes, how are you? I said, yeah, good. He goes, sit down. I go, no, no, I'm all right. I've got to go back to training in a second anyway. So he goes, sit down. And the tone of his voice was, to me, something's wrong, really wrong. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe something's happened to someone I know. Or, you know, I was really worried. I just thought, it'll be sweet as long as nothing happened to my brother. And my brother died of a heroin overdose. Wow. And I can't really remember what happened then. I think, I didn't black out, but it was just like a bit of a haze. I went for a walk with a lady. She bought me a cup of coffee. And they must have done something with my ticket because I didn't have any money to go back. I just mm. said, oh, it was like every day, I had 10 bucks a week. Everything else was paid for, the food and everything. So they must have, I don't know, they must have bought me a ticket or something happened. I went back. I buried my brother. And it's solidified where I was. I just said, you don't get to have that other shit, Pete. You get to have that or you have nothing. And so I just, I just doubled, tripled down on what I was doing. And so the next karate tournament I went to, I knocked everyone out. You reckon that give you, the death of your brother give you an extra incentive and it really pushed you or it just motivated you not to want that? I think any goal needs to have two parts. Hmm. The end bit, it's got to be something you really want. Mm. And the more you want it, the easier it is to get there. That's part of it. Mm. The other part is a bit at the bottom. You've heard the analogy mm. of the, the guy getting his head pushed underwater. The longer you're underwater and the longer someone's holding your head underwater, the more everything becomes fucking irrelevant. Mm. The only thing I want to do is get up and breathe. Mm. If I stay here, if I stay where I am right now, I'm going to die. And that was it. I didn't want to end up like my brother. I didn't want to end up like my dad. Because of the start of that heroin epidemic, people were dropping dead. And just, I thought, I don't know if Peter Graham can do it, but I'm just going to pretend I, I, that's not me. I'm just going to, I'm just going to fight. I, just going to, I, don't know, I don't know if I can do it, but I know what I want. I was desperate. I thought, I don't want to be a fuck up. And I was so scared of staying where I was. And I was like, you know, I thought, don't get happy. This ain't, you haven't made it. Because I was like, I'm in Japan. Mm. Look at me. I'm going overseas. Ego's kicking in. Yeah, a little bit of ego. And I thought, no. And then at the end of that tournament, my sensei said to me, he said, Pete, just smile. Mm. <laughs> Be a little, he goes, I know you're upset. He goes, but there's more to it than that. And he was really grounding for me as well. And literally from that day until I retired, I fought in absolutely everything I possibly could took it out in the gym. Now, it didn't happen straight away. When he died, part of me was, fuck it, I wanted to give up. I mean, like I said, I wasn't a drug guy, but I just started drinking every day. But I still go to the gym. I still train every day. I still went and talk. And then I had a profound moment that went, this is stupid. You, you're going you're gonna to end up like that. So I stopped drinking. I, I started kickboxing. Undefeated amateur world champ. I just remember every single time I thought, this is it. Right now, you got one chance if this guy's standing in front of you. And 
I still had all those feelings about it being worthless and nothing. Like I go to Melbourne and everyone's, oh, Melbourne kickboxing. They got Stan the Man. They got, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Sam Greco. They got, uh, you know, Gurkhan Oscan. You know, they, all these great. And, and in Queensland, Terence Sullivan promoting down there. It was massive. Yeah, Tarek was awesome for kickboxing. Mm. You know, and in Queensland they had John Wayne Parr and all the Thai boxers. And you're like you're from Sydney, and then I also get not only you're from Sydney, you know, Greek or Italian or anything like that. This is, you know, go play footy. Mm. I'm like, I don't want to play footy. And then I wasn't really into Thai boxing, but they're like, you're too big for Thai boxing. Mm. You know, go play footy. Go do something else. And then I was like, undefeated world champion. I was like, yeah, f- finally. When you won that world title, that must have felt so good. Like, it's a great achievement. Yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, that, that was... Did it make you feel like something? Like, did it give you any satisfaction to sort of say, maybe I am something? It, it gave me a little crack. But I also thought to myself, because there's so many different organisations and federations and kickboxing, I thought, don't get ahead of yourself. You Like I thought, okay, world champion, undefeated. Yeah, I thought to myself, you're good enough to go pro. That's what I thought. But I didn't think I was the best amateur in the world. I just thought, you're probably top of the heap in Oceania today. But, you, but you were, but you were the top of the heap. <laughs> but I didn't, I don't know, it was just, I think I was too scared to let myself be overly happy about anything. Do, do, do you think that was what, like still the driving force that you did not allow yourself to be happy, you did not allow yourself to be satisfied? Do you think that is the fuel that all fighters need, never be satisfied? <sighs> I don't know if all, I can't talk about other fighters, but, you know, being a fighter is something different. There's no analogy to a fight. Mm. You know, I tell people, say, oh, do you think I should have a fight? You know, just try it out. Mm. No, don't mm. do that because mm. you'll run into someone like me or mm. you'll run into someone like Mark Hunt mm. or you run into someone who just goes, I'm only here for this. Mm. I don't even want to be famous. I don't want the money. I just want to be able to kick the shit out of you because I know it would make my life better. Like, I didn't do anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I wouldn't even go to the beach because I didn't want to injure myself. All I wanted to do was fight. And when I turned pro, uh, my manager at the time, Lucy Tui, took me to Mundine's gym in Redfern. And if you've ever seen the Rocky movie, when Rocky goes into that black gym, mm. it was a bit like that. Are you lost? You mm. look like a cop. Get the mm. fuck out of here. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm in. This is, as far as I'm concerned, it's full of the best fighters on the planet. Yeah. You know, that was a Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, Ernesto Hoost, all like I'm here. And uh, I'd like to say I had a smooth transition, but it was tough. But I thought They make you earn it, don't they? They make you earn it. They're like and I've always noticed I've always I've followed your career, you're always in that area of the block, round red fern and that, and you were just really I don't know, you were accepted and, and embraced by that community. I don't think it would have started out that way. <laughs> it didn't start that way. But you know what? I think this is a really good way to, to think about it. I remember having that feeling going, every time I come into the block, I have that feeling that I'm being watched, I'm being looked at, eyes are on me, you're in the wrong place, you lost, fuck off. But I was used to that feeling. But you know, for, for most black fellas, you know, most people, Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders, for so long, that was the only area they didn't feel like that. Anywhere yeah. outside of that, Oh, what are you doing here? There's a black fella here. I, so I kind of, I don't know, just kind of, I went, okay, you get to cop it sweet. Hmm. 
But they'll embrace you. Back in the day, you couldn't walk down the block. I went down there with Darren Trindle, Darryl, yeah. Darryl Trindle's brother from the boys' home. We escaped yeah. from the boys' home. They knew that I was no threat. I was a scallywag, and they fucking embraced me. They loved you. They were proud of your achievements. They were flying the flag for you when you were in the fights, you know what I mean? Well, I was proud to be there. I was like, I really, once I joined that gym, and once they went, hey, this guy goes hard out. Mm. And I'm not racist. I don't care, you know. I'm like, if you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. Respect given, respect got. Absolutely. And I, did, I didn't expect anyone to like me anyway. I'm like, why would they? Mm. Some of the best advice I ever got in my life was in that gym. I remember one time I was sitting down and I was broken. I was looking at this guy. Do you know, do you remember a guy called Ningana? I know the name. He's a Koori fellow. He's done yeah. a bit of jail. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, Ningana, most of the time, had unadvertised jobs. He <laughs> <laughs> was on the Harry, smoking pots, cigarettes, yeah. alcoholic. Yeah. Good bloke. He really was. Just, yeah. you know, obviously he had demons like everyone else and he came into the gym and he was trying to show off to his junky girlfriend he was hitting the bag it was awesome huh. it was like and I'm like what the fuck wasted talent eh? well I didn't think that I thought this guy's out smashing his life doing everything wrong and he's still better than me mm. and one of the old black fellas comes through and goes oh, what's up chief mm. and I'm like mm. so look at Nigga man he's like He's out partying all the time and he's, he's better than me. He's way better. What am I doing? I'm wasting my time. He goes, why do you think that? I said, man, look at everyone in the gym. Now, this is when Chalk was there as well. Yeah. You watch him move around and even Mr. Mundine, mm. his father, I see him sparring and I go, like, just a, just a, I really felt down. Like everyone around me was either, and then you know, Mark Hunt was there as well. Yeah. And I'm like. He was brutal, eh? Yeah, he was really brutal. One of the toughest guys ever. Mm. And he goes, Pete, don't worry. He said, everyone's got something. He said, no disrespect to Nina. He passed away. So, But he hasn't got the discipline you have. And he goes, just play to your strengths. Sure. You know, heaps of these blackfellas are so talented. It's unbelievable. They get the ones like Mundine, of course, who's not only talented, dedicated. Mm. It becomes a real problem. Mm. So I just thought, I'll just double down on what I did. I said, I'm just going to work harder. Mm. That's what I did. And I think that was my whole thing. I took every fight. Because mm. who are you? You're, like, you're not going to make it. How do you feel about a lot of fighters? They go off a, a cushion record, they dodge and dark and weave, but you took a different approach. You just took everything that came your way. Look, I understand the business model. Mm. It's very difficult to make it to the top of combat sports. There's mm. only really two ways to do it. You're mm. either unbelievably talented or you win a fight you shouldn't mm. and get to the top. Yeah. And really from Australia, we don't really have a good system to be able to get people to the top. New South Wales, the Combat Sports Association, has absolutely fucking destroyed kickboxing right. and amateur boxing and Everything. MMA in New South Wales. It's ridiculous. Yep. It is the biggest fuck up in combat sports and martial arts in Australia has ever had. I, 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 it's one of the most disappointing things that's ever happened. After the height of K1 and Oceano and... Capitalise, eh? No, well, the Combat Sports Association is mm. trying to make it better. Mm. They've absolutely destroyed it. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I, I've got zero time for them. They're uneducated. They don't understand things. And one of the big things is you must be a fit and proper person to be able to compete. Mm. Meaning you can't have a criminal history. To me, that's the most ludicrous, dumb thing ever. That's the thing. The guy gets out of jail, go, look, 
You want to be a stuff up? If you're going to go over there, you're going to go back to being an idiot. You come with me in the gym. I know you're pissed off. Hit the pads, do some sparring, go home. You're too tired, fall asleep, come back. Mm. I'll see you tomorrow. Turn your life around. Mm. You've got to have someone to fight for. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. not a gym in Vaucluse that has boxing world champions because if you're living in a $20 million penthouse, yeah, you don't need wink, to fight wink, for nudge, nudge. Yeah. I know a bloke who's doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Getting punched in the face is not an option. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So you've got to have something to fight for. And going back to what I said, that was it. I knew I had something to fight for. I had that desperation. I really wanted to achieve that goal. If I didn't get it, I thought my life would be shit. So yeah. I just kept at it. And I just kept at it. And that, that going back to your original, is, is when I started breeding good guys and they started making all those excuses, mm. it, just, it, was, it was just fuel to the fire. I was like, yep, bring it on. How does that feel? I, I often wonder, like, how does it feel you beat one of these good guys and he makes an excuse? Does that, does that like, it must feel good. Yeah, it just it makes me think you're an idiot. I go, <laughs> you, 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 you're kidding yourself. I never had a sandwich that day. I never had lunch. And you fucking knocked me out with a left hook. Uh, the excuses were ridiculous. It's not, I worked harder. Yeah. And that was, you know, I, I knew I couldn't be the biggest and the toughest because Oceania is full of Polynesians. Yeah. You know, so gifted, eh? So talented. I mean, yeah. and, and literally, they're tough. Yeah, yeah. My main sparring partner when I first turned pro was Mark Hunt and I, another guy called Auckland Umatangi. And we would just beat the crap out of each other all the time. So anyone else we fought, we're like, eh. Nothing. Let's start talking about some of your achievements. K1 was just, like, massive. How did that come into it? What started to push you towards K1? So I, I love karate. I love it. Yeah. I think it's awesome. All the things it taught me outside of having a yeah. real karate. A lot of people may confuse karate with the karate kid or point karate. I'm talking karate. I lived in the most important karate dojo in Japan, in Tokyo, right? Mm. So what you get there is a lot different to what we have these McDojos going mm. around. That's fine if you do it for fitness and health and everything, but it's not really going to teach you mm. real karate, which is fine. But when I was there originally, just before my brother passed away, K1 was there and it was massive. So they had the Sato guys, the Kyokushin guys, and all the Dutch guys in K1. And it was like, man, I'm going to do that. Because that was like, that was like, Oh, rock stars, yeah. Rock stars. It was epic. That sort of blood sport, the yep. media blood sport was that, out with It Vanda. was massive, right? Yeah. You know, we had, you know, the Tokyo Dome, the Osaka Dome, the Nagoya Dome. In the Tokyo Dome, K1 maxed it out at 73,000 people. You know, literally rock stars. That's the, that's the rugby league grand final. Yep. Yeah, that's it's the... epic. We had playing cards and towels and shirts and banners, everything, right? And I'm like, that's where i got to go. That's where I've got to prove what I'm going to do. And they had the tournament. Mm. So you get like a super fight. And this is where Tarek and his promotions were awesome. Because you get like a little tournament. If you won that little tournament, you could go and have a super fight against another bloke who won another little tournament. And if you beat that bloke, you go to the next tournament. And so it was a road, literally, they used to call it the road to the Tokyo Dome. Mm. And the Tokyo Dome was where the finals were. And you just thought, you know what? For me, it was like, all I got to do is beat the crap out of him and I get to go there. Mm. It's guaranteed, right? And that's what you did. So you and then the start of the journey, man. You just off you went. Where did you start in Australia or Japan or where? No, did no, you... I started in Australia. Yeah, we had Oceania. The first Oceania, I came second because I lost to Mark Hunt. 
Mm. But what's the mindset? You and Mark Hunt are training partners, obviously friends. I've often wondered, like, you see two blokes from the same gym and everything. What's the mindset? I've just got to bash this bloke, even though we're mates. Everything's put aside. You know what it is? It's respect. Mm. Wow. Because if I don't put it on you as hard as I can, that's like me saying, I don't, I don't think you're that good. I didn't go so hard. Oh, you be... And like you were saying, what, how did it feel if someone made all these bullshit excuses after? I didn't want to give, if I'm going to win, to, to Mark, with Mark, I thought, if I beat Mark, I want to know that Mark tried his hardest. And when Mark beat me, I was, he beat me. Mm. There's no excuses. He was better on the day. Three months later, we fought again, and I beat him. And that's the respect you give each other. It's, it, it becomes different. When you're a fighter, it's nothing personal. Mm. These are the rules. So let's talk about getting in and getting recognised and coming into K1. That, that was excellent. It was, it's surreal. Like you go from... The crowds are getting bigger and mass, bigger. No, it goes from a big, a few thousand in Australia to 20, 30,000 in Japan. And it's, it's so big, you don't kind of recognise it. You know, they're giving you all this money people all around you, all of a sudden, everyone knows who you are. And the strange thing was, is that in a way, it's almost like no one knows you. Hmm. They only know, they don't know Peter Graham, Baxter. They don't know the story. They're just this fighter, Hmm. which was, which was fine. But there was a few times there. I remember when I moved to Japan, I was making all this money. I was living in a cool house in in Tokyo. And I was lonely hmm. because if I went out onto the street, sure, I'd get mobbed, but they're not your friends. They're fans. Kind of weird to get your head around. Yeah, you wouldn't have. Like, from that kid that wanted recognition, wanted to be someone, to all of a sudden having it. It, it, gets, you, it gets your priorities straight. Yeah. I remember thinking there, you know, we're fighting. Basically, for 17 years as a pro, I fought every two months. I love being a fighter. It was like... Walking out in front of 30,000, look, I've got a story. I took a fight. I, I, I cornered for a fighter in front of 12,500. And when we walked out, there was a vibration. There was an energy that just zapped through your body. I, I, I can recall And I was only walking a fighter out in front of 12,500 in Manchester. And there's this vibration. You just feel this electricity entering your body as you walk out into the... Man, how did that feel for you? You're walking oh, out in front of 30,000. The feeling is hypnotic mm. I always put my my wraps on and then once my wraps are on I felt there's no turning back mm. and I put those gloves on I was like you're going to war everything becomes super clear mm. to me it was like I, I had my destiny in my hands mm. every but- time I went out there I thought this is it in a way I still didn't have that self-confidence I was going I thought I know that I've worked absolutely as hard as I can. I know that I'm going to go and fight this bloke until either I knock him out or I die. Wow. And that, wow. that's all I thought. I thought oh, the only thing that was important was win this fight right now. And that feeling when you walk out, they love you, they hate you, it doesn't matter. Like when I fought Alexander Emelianenko in Russia, 10,000 people, he's huge as well. He's six five, two inches taller than me. You know, he's a guy who's a, he's part of the Russian mob. He's a seriously scary person on all levels. Hmm. And I, I had a terrible MMA record. I thought to myself, the only way 
that I'm going to make it in MMA is I need to beat this guy. Now, I've already been to Brazil, trained with Pedro Rizzo and all those guys, and I got there and they, they gave me terrible money. It was a, everyone, it was like, look, you're just here to be cannon fodder. Mm. I knew, I knew. I was like, yeah, that's cool. But in my brain, it was like, this is your opportunity. I trained my ass off for this. I knew it was tough. He hit me so hard that I lost my sense of my ability to taste anything for two weeks. Mm. But I remember slamming his brow, just looking in his eyes. And he's, he's like looking into hollow pools of nothing. And, and he has a sense of evil coming off him. Like he's not a good person. Mm. Like he's got a lot of personal demons. Mm. Mm. But I remember the fight. And I remember slamming my, my leg into his thigh. And I, I saw that for a fifth of five-eighths of, of a second, the break in his head. And I was like, oh. And I just thought, now you're dead. And it, that feeling... It's nothing like The fire, like it. the fire. Like I always said, my professional manager, I said, just give me the biggest, baddest, scariest person that I can fight. Because you fucking found it in the Russian. Yeah, yeah, I found him. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but, but the bigger they were, the badder they were, the more of a superstar they were, the better the win. Yeah, yeah. And you just keep chasing that. And I just wanted I just I wanted to be legit. There's that fire from that little boy wanting to be recognised. Yeah, I guess so. And here it is. When you see that break in that Russian, when I'm seeing that, when I'm seeing that, I'm seeing when the hot air balloon goes off, right, and they do that flame and it goes... Yeah. I I imagine that. That's that that feeling that... When you you crack him in the leg and it just goes bang and it's like that fire just shoots off. And I just... That's what I see as a vision of that's what must have been like this... like a thunder going off in your head and in your heart when you've cracked him, you know, and you know that you're breaking him as a man. It's, yeah, it breaks me. It really can fuck some people up, really. You know what it's like? For me, because, I, like I said before, I'm a big guy. Yeah. I'm, you know, what am I, 6'3", and I'm anywhere from 15 to 120 kilos, uh, depending on the fight. Mm. A bit lighter for longer fights, like boxing world titles mm. have to be 12 rounds, so you just can't yeah. do it at 120 yeah. kilos. And... K1, short rounds, so you want to be as heavy as I can. But when, when you're fighting, for me, I was like, I'm setting him up, setting him up. Mm. The whole time I'm like... Game of chess. Yeah, yeah, game of physical chess. That's exactly it. Mm. And so always, I would say when we're training, at the end of any successful combination, the other person's knocked out cold. Mm. So that's what it is. It's like, you know, it's like a Rubik's Cube. There's lots of different ways to do it. Mm. But we have set programs, but every single person is a slightly different way to do mm. it. So there's lots of different combinations when I fight mm. you. you so you're just saying that one didn't work, so I'll try another one. Yeah. Or I know that, uh, let's give a good example, like um, Mark Hunt. Mm. One of the things about Mark Hunt is he is incredibly tough, not just physically, but mentally. So I remember when I lost the first time, I'd I'd paused in front of him. I just about won the fight. I thought, if this goes to the points, I'm going to win. Easy. I thought, yep. I stopped and he, he got me. So I thought, I can't make that mistake again. But I, I need him in the face in the second fight. I thought, this is awesome. I've rocked him. Uh, you know, I found the chink in the arm. But he kind of staggered back a little bit, came forward and went, okay, now I have to put my ego aside and go, if I'm going to win this, I have to do it on points and I can't make the same mistake that I did last time. When I fought Alexander Emelianenko, so big, tough, and everything like that, 
I thought, okay, I've just got to keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, have faith in what I'm doing and wait for that, chop down that tree, chop down that tree and wait for him to make that mistake. What was the end result with him, the Russian? Well, when I was, for me, uh, in the actual fight was, I remember him hitting me with a jab and thinking, holy fuck, he smacked me in my nose, I see the stars, and I thought, man, I've got to really stay out and really work hard to be able to beat him. But then when I seen him, like, because he comes across as such a terrifying guy, when I smashed his leg the first time and he went, oh, I went, that's it? I mean, being slightly disappointed. Mm. And then this was an entire ice hockey stadium full of Russian fans. They wanted their man to win. Mm. When I started to get him, I smashed him on the leg. I got him again. I thought, he's not checking these low kicks. I thought, well, maybe it's a, maybe he's going to take one and then counter with something. Counter yeah. with, with a judo hip throw. Yeah. But he didn't. So I just thought, oh, I'll just keep going. About, let's talk about some of your highlights in your career. Like, okay, you went, you've done the K1, you've also done boxing. A lot of people, that's a big transition, isn't it? The, the... Yeah. Well, what happened was, is in 2008, K1 basically ceased to basically work as an organisation. They weren't paying people. And my manager was like, so I moved back to Australia and then, then I thought I still got to do something. So I started doing MMA at Boxing Works, uh, Boxing Works in Sydney with Larry Papadopoulos and, and boxing as well. I remember you fighting as a boxer. I thought you were impressive because a, a lot of the kickboxers come in with that style. They fight on the back foot, but you had good feet, you know. You had a good style for boxing. Thanks. I worked really hard. I mean, I got to box a lot at Mundine's gyms, a lot of obviously Around, really good boxers. Yeah. But I just said, I'm going to work on my MMA and I'm going to work on my boxing. Hmm. And there's a lot of guys who just box. Learning to box isn't too hard. Learning to, the offensive boxing is not too difficult. Hmm. Uh, the defensive boxing is tough. Hmm. And fighting boxing title fights. You fought difficult. for a world title. Yeah, for a WBF world title, which is like a second tier. Yeah. It's a great achievement. Yeah, it was awesome. As, you know, it was, especially as a big fella. Yeah, scheduled for 12. It was a tough day. They've got a hey, big cut on my eye. I still won the fight. Who were some of the Australian fighters fighting at the time in the boxing? Uh, David Levi is his actual name. Mm. He was good. Um, some of the up-and-coming guys. There was also um, Tai Tua Tavase. Yeah. We had a, a hybrid mm. MMA fight, which was mostly boxing. I knocked him out as well. Mm. He was my, his, I was his, yeah, it was the first time he ever lost was against me. And then he went to the UFC. I only really, you had that and then I fought uh, Ben Edwards mm. from, for the Australian title. Who was your trainer at the time for the boxing? Barry Raff. Okay, I remember Baz, promoter for Manly. Yeah. He had the, he done a lot of drug and alcohol promotions at a Manly Leagues Club. Yeah. Yeah, good bloke, Barry Raff. Yeah, couldn't lie straight in bed. <laughs> <laughs> good uh, guy. Yeah, yeah. He, hey. He's another guy who turned his round, life around with boxing and stuff mm. like that. Yeah. He helped lots of people. Mm. And for ages, he was my boxing coach. But to begin with, the person who taught me boxing, though, was Alex Tui. Yeah. Tom Domican was around them days, too, yeah. wasn't he? And, Tom. Yeah. And I guess... Actually, Paul Gretsch was in my corner for a lot of my professional boxing fights to begin with it too. I just want to backtrack a little bit. Fighting in front of 73,000 people in the K1 in Japan, walking out to that, talk us through that. The Tokyo Dome is so big they play baseball. You know, wow. they're, they're inside. Yeah. Right? So that gives you an idea of what it's like. And we're backstage and they, 
everyone is a superstar. Mm. Everyone on the card is a superstar. And to me, it's just, you have to take your reality and go, I'm just going to pop that over there for a second. Yeah. Because if you think about it too long, it just, it freaks you out. The crowd disappears on the second tier. You can see the the row of lights and Mm. you know there's another two layers above that and Mm. it's full. Right? The Japanese crowd are the most educated. They know exactly what's going on. They're the best fans. When they say, I'm big in Japan, Mm. that's what it's like. And something, one of the awesome things about being a fighter in Japan they really respect it if you come to fight. Mm. If you dog it there, yeah, they'll let you have it. They just ignore you. And that's why I think so many guys like fighting in Japan is because, you know, when someone's got a padded record and then they go and fight someone who's they kind of good to win, you're like, yeah, I can see the skill because it's all about mental toughness, right? Mm. But in Japan, they all know that they've got fighting spirit. You know, that's, yeah. that's, it's cultural for them. So yeah. if you go out there and every time you go there, you're going to bite down hard in your mouth, go say, let's go. It's going to be on every, mm. you know, until I die or you die. And when, when they see that, they love it. Very similar to Mexico, huh? Yeah. It's very a, similar. Very similar. They love a fighter. They love someone yeah. that just will take the punishment and give it back. Yeah. I think more in Mexico is kind of like more a macho thing. Yeah. In Japan, it's, more of a fighting, fight, like a fighting spirit. Yeah. You meet so many guys who are in K1 and they say, man, I just, there's nothing like fighting you, in Japan. You'd be like, do you sort of have a bond with those blokes that you've fought with? Like, you know, and there'd be like that, a lifelong man, we, we challenged each other to be great. And yeah. it'd be that just mutual respect. You look at that bloke for the rest of your life with admiration of what he brought into your life. Yeah, uh, even with, you know, even with guys who, you know, from the outside looking in, you hate each other and stuff like that, you, you know that you get something from it. Mm. Uh, you know, some guys I've fought, like there's a guy in New Zealand called Jason Suddy, I fought him five times, two mm. wins, two losses and a draw. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so, don't you hate that? More <laughs> so, equal, more equal. <laughs> Let's go in the car park and finish this. <laughs> Someone's got to be better than the other. But, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah, yeah. And once you you notice that when you're in that... Good analogy. That, that, that mm. top uh, tier of fighters, whether it's boxing, kickboxing or MMA, it's, it kind of stays the same. There's a few guys who make it and then go down because mm. once you get there, everything that you ever wanted all of a sudden gets given to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're into drugs, guess what? You can destroy yourself with drugs real easy yeah. now. If you're into cars, they get faster and people will just lend them to you or give them to you or whatever. Yeah. You can kill yourself with that. If you're into whatever it is, if your whole thing was you just wanted to be able to screw good-looking girls and all of a sudden you're going to waste your life doing that, whatever it is, it's there. So you've got to have a lot of discipline. A lot of guys should have stayed at the top for a long time, but they get there and then they mess it up and end up, unfortunately, worse than when they started. So, But the guys who kind of stay there you really start to have that bond. And like yeah. you were saying before, it's like, you know, when you meet someone, you start to become, you, you have that bond and say, hey, yeah, we're fighting the next show. Well, I'll see you there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we'll shake hands after it. Yeah. But up until then, we're, it's on. You've got a 10-hour <laughs> podcast in you, I'm telling you. It's one of the, you've got one of the most interesting stories I've ever had. Just talk through your record. What was your record? Tell us about what did you achieve in, K- in karate? Okay, so... Basically, all the karate tournaments I won. Uh, not a bad. Not bad. <laughs> um, 
in Oceania. Then I went to kickboxing, undefeated amateur world champion for kickboxing. Uh, then, of course, I turned pro, Oceania champ for that. ISKA world champion, w, uh, WKBF world champion as a pro. There's a few of them. Uh, I beat Mike Angrove in New Zealand for a Thai boxing world title as a pro. Like I said, there's a couple of kickboxing world titles. Julius Long, WBF boxing heavyweight world title. And for MMA, probably the most famous guy I've been in MMA is probably Tai Tuatavase. Mm. Oh, and then I made it to the final of the Bellator heavyweight finals and fought Cheat Congo. I fought him on short notice. Mm. He was the UFC champ as well. So to fight him on short notice and lose on points, I wasn't too upset. Funny enough, I've never watched the fight. I can't bring myself to do it because I thought that'd be great. That'd be the, the triple okay. crown. That'd be the boxing, kickboxing, and MMA of all three of them. But, yeah, that was it. So about 127 professional fights. They don't do that these days, do they? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they still do it in Thailand, I yeah. guess. So there's yeah. a lot of amateur boxers who do have a lot of boxing. Yeah. The, like, same going back to, you know, the New South Wales Combat Sports Association in Australia has decimated the sport. I think so too. And I think it should be discussed. They should people be should be out. taken. And I, I know some legal, I've talked to lawyers about it on behalf of some people that people should be taken on by way of judicial review in the Supreme Court. They should be, a lot of them decisions should start to be challenged and that's the only way they're going to make them people accountable. And there's a thing in the Supreme Court where you can do by civil administration's tribunal, you can take them on their decisions and people have got to start doing it because I agree with you. They're destroying the sport, you know what I mean? And, that, and there's different laws in different states, isn't there? Yeah, really, really epically different as well. Mm. Here it's just really restrictive. In Queensland it's a little less, and then the Northern Territory can do whatever you want. Life after combat sports, tell us what are you doing these days? When I stopped, I was uniquely aware of that if I didn't start doing something and have that sense of passion, lots of fighters end up worse than when they started. Mm. I basically just started doing as many things as I could, as diverse as I could. Yeah. And I played, also I played to my strengths. I own a big combat sports center out west mm. in Prospect, yeah. part of the IMC Australia group, sold mm. a bunch of them. And we work with ISCA, of course, which is the mm. biggest governing body for combat sports. So that's good because we got karate, we got kickboxing, we got Thai mm. boxing. Uh, what else? We got boxing, we got and also Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and grappling. We had MMA for a long time, but we found that really difficult to keep people coming because once they found out exactly how hard it was to wrestle all the time, mm. they oh, what do I want okay. to do? So I have that, yeah. and I really enjoy it. And then I found, I said, I wanted to push myself. I've done a little bit of academic stuff, so mm. I thought, oh, maybe I'd become a pilot. So because I don't have a school, I don't even have a school certificate, uh, I had to do a skills proficiency test. Turns out it's not as dumb as I thought. Yeah. <laughs> I nailed that, and then I did some stuff to some kind of proficiency testing to see what you need to become a pilot. To a pilot. I, yeah. I, I did all the testing, yeah. and then my mate said to me, do you really want to spend the next 20 years away from life, mm. from, from your, your wife and kids? Mm. I went, yeah, of course. And okay, maybe that's not for me. Something that I've always done in the background is is property. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we were talking about before. I, yeah. I, I got this little house in, um, this little terrace house in Redfern that I bought when I first uh, turn pro and it was almost yeah. unlivable that's how bad it was but mm. anyway so you know ever have a fight fix a room have a fight fix a room and and now of course it's you know Redfern's awesome and yeah it's gentrifying yeah it's awesome like the area we're sitting in now Erskineville and yeah okay it's the same now Spanion 
Everyone knows Spanion. Spanion yeah. is like fucking a household name these days. How did the Spanion come into your life? So, I, like I was saying before, I have a, a property company. Mm. It's a buyer's agency, equity development. Just mm. That's a big word for mm. saying yeah. making your piece of land worth more. Yeah. Anything from subdivisions and stuff like that. So I, I was, you know, I'm into that. That's, you know, that's where I spent a lot of my time. And... And then the guys at the gym were talking about Spanian said, oh, yeah, look at this guy. I said, oh, yeah, he's cool. That's good for him. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder why I don't know him. I started looking at some of his stuff and it's like, he was around all the same people I was, like, mm. all the time. And the reason I wasn't knowing him, he was getting into trouble and I was getting into the gym. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, he was talking that he wanted to have a fight. Uh, and he went through a different a few coaches and it just didn't seem to work for me. Just He said to me later on, it just wasn't a fit. And then I got a call out of the blue, a random call. I said, hey, Pete, uh, I'm calling on the behalf of uh, Spanion. Do you, do you know who he is? I said, oh, yeah, I know who he is. Yeah. I said, how do you feel about being his coach? I said, oh, yeah, what does he want to do? He said, at that time he wanted to do MMA. Uh, he likes kickboxing as well. And I said, uh, I said, oh, well, let me... Let me get back to you. So I looked into him a little bit more and I thought, oh yeah, actually I like what he's doing. He's trying to improve his life. He's trying to lift other people with him. I thought, oh, I can be part of that. I'll call him back. So well, let me meet him first. Okay. So I met him and I thought, yeah, he's all right. He's, you know. He, he's, he's pretty humble, isn't he? He's very humble. Actually, mm. the more you know him, the, the more humble you actually realise he is. And you think, one thing I know about Spanion he has an ability to be vulnerable too. He does. He doesn't show it a lot. I guess it's a bit, maybe a bit like you and me. Hmm. You know, to begin with, it's like, you want to fuck with me? I'm going to tear your head off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that part's real. Hmm. But his dedication and hard work and consistency is second to none. And seeking knowledge, I, I always find him. He's always, he's, he's a sponger. Absolutely. So going back to where he comes, so, so we met him. I said, okay, let's you know do a trial session. I thought, to begin with, it was like, who the hell taught you how to kick? He goes, oh, I just me and my mates, we taught ourselves in jail. Mm. At first I thought, oh, maybe he's just bullshitting me, someone yeah. told him, because, but it turns out he really did. It's been, anyway, so he needed, obviously he needed a coach and we worked. And we, I said, okay. And I basically laid it down to him. I said, look, I've worked long and hard to be where I am. If I'm going to put my name with yours, not only as a combat sports athlete, but as a person, we're going to expect to reflect it back. And he's like, yeah, cool. Everyone says that. Everyone mm -hmm. goes, yeah, cool, Norris. Mm -hmm. But he did. The amount of times that he's surprised me in a good way is unbelievable. He just keeps coming back. He just keeps, he always comes to training. He's all, like I'm not talking most of the time. I'm not, I'm not saying... There's two or three times they didn't tell you about because mm. it makes for a good story. I'm talking every single time he turns up early, every single time he turns up to train, every single time. Turning up early, I mean, you, I was funny because we're talking about meeting today and I said to you, you know, I, I said, I'll get there early. And you go, yeah, yeah, you're my man because you love that. And I love it too. I love, that's a sign of respect. And I, and I try to send that message to you, a lot of young blokes. Always turn up, be, be an hour earlier than a minute late. Oh, Absolutely. And Spaniard, that's 100%. You know, he, uh, he's easy to, you know, he's happy to admit his mistakes. He's happy to, he's, he's intelligent enough when someone knows something more. He asks insightful, respectful questions. It's like, this guy can be a fighter. And he's got something to fight for. And he's got something to prove. Mm. 
Like he's like, and people are like, ah, you know, he's some jailbird. He's just waffling mm. on. But no, he's a very intelligent. Super. Uh, and really respectful. Well, re- well read. He knows history. I, I love I love when he goes and then sort of talks about, like he talks about, you know, he'll talk a great philosopher or whatever. I love that in people that they've dug deep. Mike Tyson's the same. Mike mm. Tyson can quote Ashke. He can quote the greatest philosophers of all. I love that about someone. And that entwined into a fighter is just a perfect combination, isn't it? He has that depth. Mm. And he has something to fight for now. Mm. He has a beautiful family. But there, he has that persona of a fighter. Every part of him is a fighter. He wants to be better. He wants to prove you wrong. But not in a way so he can shove it down your face, but so he can prove to himself that, yeah, mm. whatever he chooses to do, he'll succeed. Mm, I love ke- it. And he, ke- and he keeps doing it. Mm. Uh, I love it when people write me. My whole st- – there's this thing when they write me off. I, I remember a psych telling me, you're a million to one shot of fucking making it. I said, well, it's fucking – I like a million to one. They put a couple of bucks on me. Yeah, absolutely. You I mean, know. you're the same. If we were sitting in a jail cell right now having a conversation and the social workers came in and said, hey, we're going to do it. You know, we totally understand why you're where, where you are. Yeah. Don't worry, Mr. Graham. Well, yeah, yeah, the reason you're here is because... But you're I, the same, Pete. You, 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 mate, you had every reason to be a crim and a fallout. Absolutely. But uh, you know what? It's that there, there's... No one would have said, oh, well, you know, he should have done better. No, like you. Hmm. No one's going, well, he should have done better. There was, I mean, I guess there was no expectation from anyone to do anything. But you're a prime example to those street kids or them kids struggling now... I've done it. I've been there. I've done it. Look at me. This is what I did. There should be... This is this lived experience sort of stuff. Like, there's nothing like lived experience. The universities are starting to look at it. They're starting to say, that. look, the, the answer is in the Spaniards, the Peter Grahams, the Russell Mansons, the Jeff Morgans. That's the answer to these street kids. Absolutely. They're causing all sorts of trouble. I kids. remember that. Like, loads of energy. They want to do something. There's nothing to do. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. So they don't know that there is another thing. There is another way to do it. You know, and I'm not just saying it's only about being a combat sports athlete or a fighter or a martial artist or even an athlete. Some people are just really academic. I always say there's a system. And once you know the system, you're sweet. If I meet a kid and they're really artistically inclined, and I say, hey, that's great. You know, look, here's the bad news. Unless you happen to have a, a trust fund or a million bucks or, you know, a, mm. a really supportive family, you're, you're probably going to have to get a job. Yeah, yeah. Just Someone's got to be can. real. But if you spend all your free time doing what you love, mm. you're probably going to do all right at it. Mm. The, the answer is that you're actually going to do really well. I've it. got it in spades. I've got the lifestyle today that I focused on having years ago. Like I got out of jail. I said, I'm going to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week for two years, and I'm going to reassess. And man, bingo, there it was. And the number one thing when asked, Oprah Winfrey said about, of all the people you interviewed, What's that thing that made them in a word or in a sentence that made them them? What, what, what do you think? And you have it and I have it and Spanish has it. And it is that they knew what they wanted. Mm. You know, may, mm. may not know how to get it, but you knew what you want. And that's it. That's really that's it. That's true. That's true. I didn't know how to get it, but I just knew what I wanted and I yeah. just kept pushing towards it. Yeah. Working out what did work, what didn't work, learning from mistakes. Yeah. I always say there's always, it's also good to know what you don't want as well. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want, yeah. Like, I don't want to hang out with those idiots because they're going to fucking destroy my life. Yeah. You know? 
It's like me. It's like we're talking today about, I know where you live. You live in Barangaroo, which is mm. freaking awesome. Mm. But for me, always looked at living in the northern beaches. Just says the ultimate success. To me, that's what it is. It just There's something more than any other part of Sydney uh, that says to me, you made it. Yeah. And you made it in the right way. I'm not trying to put anyone on a show. You find a lot of people do really well and you go, oh, that guy's worth what? Mm. You know, or they're who? Yeah. But they're not trying to, you know, they don't, you know, they really have made it. They're not trying to pretend to be something. They yeah. are. And they're, they're good within themselves. I'm not saying it doesn't happen in yeah. other areas, of course. Uh, but for me, that's what it was. I really knew what I wanted. And like yourself, you know, there's this, and it's, you know, that, that feeling of sitting on your lounge and watching your TV or whatever and going, I created this. Yeah. It's it the equal opposite of doing it. Yeah. And it's the but, opposite of sitting in a jail cell. I never yeah. have, but sitting there going, but acknowledging that, that too, and yeah, acknowledging I created it. this. Yeah, acknowledging it in, in by way of gratitude. I write gratitude lists every day. Yeah, you're saying it. That's awesome. I write them every day, and I thank the universe for fucking creating this lifestyle that I dreamed of having, and I'm so fucking grateful. On that note, Peter, the Chief Graham, it's <laughs> mate. I, I'd love to do a part two of you sometime, man, because I think you have such. So much to give to this world, man. Like, fuck, man. Inspiration. And um, there's a few things I'd love to come back and do another podcast with you. I think you've got about 10 podcasts in you. I don't know if I've got 10, but I'll come back. <laughs> Mate, I loved having you here, Pete. Honestly, brother. It's been just such a pleasure. I've got so Thanks, much bro. out of this. Thank you. Thank you.